Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. One of the healthiest skills that you can learn when it comes to engaging with scripture is to start out by becoming aware of and naming the load of baggage that you bring with you to the passage that you are reading. Because we all bring a bag of thoughts, ideas, images, pictures to the scripture. And those thoughts, ideas, and pictures are in some way foreign to the scripture. They're foreign to the story. They are a product of our own culture and our own experiences. And the healthiest thing to do is to start out by recognizing, oh, that's some of my own baggage that I'm, I'm kind of transporting into this. I'm bringing it into this. For example... Today we're looking at one of the four exorcism stories that we find in the Gospel of Luke. An exorcism means casting out a demon. And we all have a load of baggage that we bring to any exorcism story. We just do. The way that you imagine this story that we're about to read and the meaning that you make of this story is going to be in part a product of your experiences and your culture. And so the question is, what's inside your bag? What's your baggage that you're bringing to this scripture before we even read it? Inside of your bag, you might carry experiences that have felt evil, supernatural, paranormal. You may have an experience of deliverance, Or you may say, I lack any experiences with stuff like this, and that's actually just as weighty. Or your baggage might be that you've got stories that other people have told you, or concepts that other people have shared, and you know those people, and you trust those people, and so that impacts you. Even if you aren't a horror film junkie, Your baggage that you bring probably includes some cultural images of what evil and demon stuff looks like. Like, what does an exorcism look like? You've seen trailers for exorcism films or trailers for paranormal shows. 
the baggage you bring might include your own experiences or a family member's experiences of wrestling with mental health or with addictions. You might bring your own certainties, your own values, convictions, and beliefs. The baggage you bring might include your own personal learning journey and your own education. It might include your own skepticism or questions or doubts. It might include your own emotions. There are ways that this topic makes you feel. Or it might include history, how this topic has been handled in the past and how that makes you feel. For instance, in history, those who employed the language of spiritual warfare and tried to put everything into categories of good and evil often ended up being the same people who waged war on other humans. And so they, they deemed other people as good and evil. And so they saw a devil under every bush and they were the ones who ended up demonizing other people. So there's a history of holy wars and inquisitions and witch burnings and genocides. And there might be a way that that makes you feel. And you might bring those emotions to the topic. That's just an example. This is just a, a smattering of what might be in your bag that you bring to an exorcism story. So as a starting place... On Sunday, we had a little discussion time. When it comes to an exorcism story, what is it that is in your bag? Without dumping out all of your luggage, just briefly identify which categories are the weightiest for you as you come to an exorcism story in the Gospel of Luke. So take a moment, if you're listening along with someone, chat about that. If you're listening by yourself, just think about what has impacted me around this topic before we even get started. Okay, the last Sunday that we were able to meet, we saw Jesus declaring his mission. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And today, we get to see what Jesus' mission looks like in a different synagogue, in a different neighborhood other than Nazareth. Uh, we get to see what Jesus' mission looks like in the fishing village of Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now, before I read this story, just a quick tidbit that we, we might call this first century demon battling 101. And I'm going to use a metaphor from the sport of wrestling. 
So in wrestling, there's a devastating move called the cradle. And if you can get your opponent into the cradle, your chances of pinning them are very good. So what was the devastating cradle move when it came to battling demons in the first century? It was thought that whoever was the first to call out the name or the true identity of their opponent gained the upper hand by exposing them and they had control over them. It was the devastating cradle move when it came to battling a demon. So if a priest could call out the identity, the name of a demon, they stood a good chance of casting it out. This was the thought. But if the demon called out the priest's name, then the demon would probably continue to hold power over that person. So just keep that in mind as a little tidbit while we read Luke chapter 4, verse 31 through verse 41. Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed, and they said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. Now, did you just catch what happened there? The demons got the devastating cradle move on Jesus, and Jesus didn't even flinch. The demons knew and called out Jesus' identity as the Holy One of God and the Son of God, and Jesus didn't even try any counternaming or anything. It's like the wrestler who lets himself get put in the cradle position because he knows this ain't no thing. He, he told the demons to just shut up and come out. It's as though the devastating cradle movement absolutely nothing to Jesus. It's like he allowed himself to be put in the most vulnerable position imaginable, and then he pinned the demons with his pinky. 
It's really interesting to note in this story that Jesus treated both the demons and the fever in exactly the same way. And he rebuked them both. That that word uh, Jesus said sternly, it's the same word as rebuked. Luke describes the fever holding this woman in oppression as if she were a captive of it. And then the fever releases her when Jesus rebukes it in the same way that Jesus has said earlier, he has sent me to proclaim release for the captives. And there he is doing that exact same thing. These are the same words. Now in English, you're not going to see it, but in in Greek, that's what's going on. Later that night, the lines between healing and exorcism get even blurrier. We see Jesus laying his hands on sick people, and we see demons coming out, shouting Jesus' identity, trying to get the devastating cradle move on Jesus to no avail. Jesus released the captives. He restored them to a meaningful place in their community. Now, this story generates all kinds of questions. And so I want to start out by acknowledging how limited our understanding really is when it comes to what is going on with demons and evil and Satan and principalities and powers. We look at all of this and we want clean cut lines. We want things explained. We want answers. What exactly is evil? What exactly is the Satan? What exactly are demons? What does it mean to be demonized or held by a demon? Can it happen to anyone? If you are demonized, do you know it? If you know it, can you do anything about it? What are the lines between demons and disease? To put it in terms of our gospel story, if evil is a thing, we want to name the evil. We want to explain it. We want a category for it. We want to figure it out. We want answers. It's like we want the devastating cradle move, as if by understanding and explaining evil, like if we can name it, we think somehow we might have the power. And so, spoiler alert, I'm probably not going to answer all your demon questions today. We live in a world that can explain almost anything to us. Every hurt and habit and hang-up and struggle and disease and problem has some kind of an explanation. We now understand the chain of cause and effect. Human need is experienced in so many different ways, by different people, in different times and places. And so much of that human need these days is met with an explanation. So if you have a lump under your armpit, we can figure it out. We can explain it. We can dial in on the genetics and the enzymes and the hormones, the chemical imbalances, the virus. We can explain it. If you find yourself boiling over with anger and becoming paralyzed by anxiety or sinking below the surface in depression, we can explain it. 
We can analyze you and test you and keep looking until we understand and explain it. Or if you find yourself struggling with your job, feeling listless and purposeless and lost, we can explain it. You can take loads of personal inventories and tests and we can look at the structural, psychological, socioeconomic, anxiety-related factors in your work environment and we can explain it. If you're struggling in your marriage, we can explain it. We can explain how your upbringing affected you and how your mental health is affecting you and your emotional health and your personality style and on and on. We can explain it. If you encounter a rainstorm that floods your basement, we can explain it. We can look at all the meteorological factors and the atmospheric conditions and we can explain it. Or if you hear about the war in the Middle East or a squabble in the local city council, we can explain it. We can look at where the communication is breaking down and where the money's actually going and who's profiting from what and what the value differences are, and we can explain it. Or if you find yourself struggling with an addiction, say an unhealthy relationship with food or with your phone, we can explain it. We can understand your upbringing and your coping skills and your self-awareness and your biochemistry, and we can explain it. No matter the human need, we can explain it. Now, back in the olden days, before the Enlightenment, back in the Dark Ages, when people encountered this kind of stuff, they might call it evil or the work of the adversary or the Satan or the devil or the principalities and powers or the demons. But these days, we push that kind of an idea off. A lot of people do. It's silly. We write it off. We've done away with the mystery of evil as a supernatural thing. We've figured out that there's a cause and effect chain, and we can explain it. We say, actually, it's this gene, or that virus, or this personality style, or that organizational structure, or this socioeconomic dynamic, or that mental health condition. You see, once we can see a link in the cause and effect chain, we think we can rule out the possibility of evil. And if you rule out the possibility of evil, it certainly impacts whatever you think is going on with religion. Forbes magazine staff writer Richard Karlgaard calls self-help the great American religion. Uh, today, market data reports that self-help industry is worth $11.6 billion in the United States alone. Whether your problem is an addiction, a disability, a parenting struggle, financial struggle, weight loss, relationship struggle, bereavement, otherwise, self-help claims to know the steps down the path to happiness, goodness, and truth. And the basic answer that self-help gives to people is whatever kind of help you need, that help can be found in yourself. All you need to do are access these tools, access this information. It's you can do this. Now, I want to be clear. A lot of what self-help has to offer is truly helpful and wise and well-founded and often full of common sense. And I'm committed to being a lifelong learner. I love the learning journey. 
I'm constantly on the hunt myself to try to understand things and try to explain things. So by bringing up self-help, I'm in no way trying to throw the learning journey under the bus or medical research or psychological research or sociology or therapy or even self-help. I'm not trying to throw any of those under the bus, but I do have a question. And the question goes like this. So just because we can see some of the links in the cause and effect chain, does that mean we can see all of the links in the cause and effect chain? Is everything in the human experience explainable? Or is there always more mystery in the human experience than we want to admit? You see, here's the conundrum. Once we understand the problem, we are unable to escape the reality of evil. There's so much in this world, this life, our relationships, our families, in ourselves that we say, man, this is a mess. I know this isn't the way that the world is supposed to be, but I don't even know how to fix it all. You see, the struggle is, even though we can explain the lump under your armpit, the evil of cancer still eats away your functioning and your money and your joy and your family's peace. Or even though we can explain your anger, it might still smolder like a volcano and sometimes explode out of you and you can feel how pervasively it runs through you. Even though we can explain and understand what happened to a relationship, it doesn't mean you can find the way to, to reconciliation. Even though we can explain why your job situation is so complex and difficult, it doesn't mean you know how to solve it or what to do about it. Even though we can explain exactly why your marriage is challenging, it doesn't heal you and your spouse from the dynamics and patterns that create the dysfunction. Even though we can explain natural disasters, it doesn't make them less painful for people who have lost everything. Even though political scientists can explain Israel's point of view and Palestinians' point of view, it doesn't mean the evils of war are miraculously just done away with. It doesn't mean children on both sides aren't growing up with trauma and recycling their parents' hatred and nationalism and vengeance and violence. Even though you can explain all the reasons why you are right and everyone else is wrong, it doesn't mean you're right, but more importantly, it doesn't mean that ugly separations and relational wounds are, are mended and healed. Even though we can explain drug addiction and domestic violence and human trafficking, racism, poverty, we still see people around the world suffering from these. Even though you spend decades trying to understand your own hurts and habits and hang-ups, it doesn't mean that you don't find yourself doing the exact same thing you said you were never going to do again, the thing you said you don't want to do, the thing that brings dysfunction to your life and the lives around you. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, I cannot understand my own behavior. I fail to carry out the very things that I want to do, and I find myself doing the very things I hate. Although the will to do what is good is in me, 
the performance is not. See, you would think that in a world where we can explain everything, that we wouldn't really need any deliverance. But it simply isn't the case. We know deep down in our bones the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Even if we say we can explain why the world isn't the way it's supposed to be, we can't fix it all. No matter how much we want to erase the mystery of evil, we can't escape the reality of evil. Evil keeps on happening. It's all around us. It gets inside our work environments and our family relationships, our political systems, our racial relationships, our economic system. It gets inside of us. It infects our opinionated minds, our resilient yet sensitive hearts, our traumatized and vulnerable bodies. I mean, goodness, you find yourself tossing and turning even in your sleep and staring into the darkness of the night, feeling like, man, there's there's something dark in this. Something is wrecking havoc, causing chaos, dysfunction, separation, war, greed, racism, hatred, addiction, and oppression. And it's inside of us and it's outside of us. There's something real that is debilitating and dehumanizing and working against everything that's good. Evil is like an adversary that's prowling and finding vulnerabilities and striking, and we're unable to remove it from the world. We simply don't have the wherewithal to save ourselves. We need outside help. We need healing and hope and direction, love, provision, protection, reconciliation, freedom, saving, deliverance. In a word, we need divine intervention. So back to our story, the the man in the synagogue in Nazareth. He had come to a point where the help that he needed could not be found within himself. The same with Simon's mother-in-law. She had come to a point where the help that she needed could not be found in herself. There were so many people in the neighborhood in Capernaum who needed help, but the help they needed couldn't be found in themselves. And we're no different. The help we need cannot be found within ourselves. Now, it's not that we are evil. The first thing scripture tells us is that we are good. We all have gifts about who we are. We're created in the image of God without God in us. We wouldn't exist. We would fall apart. Scripture says that God is the one that's holding all creation together. The early church spoke of evil as a missing of something. It's a deprivation. It's Evil's not something that's generated. It's more like a distortion, a negation, a turning away from God's good purposes for all of creation. We are created good, but we also have shadow sides, parts of us that are less than ideal, things that are off, regrettable aspects 
There's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde dynamic. Scripture uses the language of the flesh to talk about this. I like the phrase, you are better than you think you are, and you're a whole lot worse off than you think you are. These are both true at the same time. And this is why Jesus says, I didn't come for those who are healthy, but for those who need a doctor. Whatever this mystery of evil is, Jesus never tried to name it. He didn't try to explain it. He conquered it. He is conquering it. He will conquer it. The help that we need is found in Jesus. Jesus is the one who rescues us from whatever it is that is adversarial, dehumanizing, debilitating, working against the goodness of all creation. Jesus is the one who delivers us from evil and restores us to our communities. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples was, deliver us from the evil. Whatever this is, deliver us. Because Jesus is the one who delivers us from the evil. In the words of Bill Wilson in his 12 steps, he says, Step one, we admitted that we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. How does this feel to you to consider evil as a reality and to consider the need for Jesus as a deliverer from evil? One of the fears that people have of even considering this as a reality considering evil as a real thing and Jesus as a deliverer from evil, they say, well, does this mean that I'm denying science? Like, does this mean I'm going back to living in the dark ages? Does this create kind of an all-or-nothing relationship with science and with education? For instance, like, why go to the doctor if you can pray it away? Why go to the therapist if you can pray it away? This is the kind of question that they ask. And so I want to make an observation from my own life and from the scripture that we're looking at today. This observation, I've also seen this in the lives of many people I've known. And so I'll say it something like this. This is a dynamic that I often see. Synagogue plus Jesus equals deliverance from evil. Okay, so that's, that's a dynamic that I see in this story and often in my life and the lives of others. So let me explain it a little bit. So notice that the man in the story held by the demon went to the synagogue that day. Now, we, we shouldn't just pass that by. First century synagogues weren't only places of worship. They were places of education community gathering, community wisdom, and this man somehow made his way to that place. What better place for 
a man held by evil to be. He went to the place of community gathering and worship and wisdom. He was doing what he could do. Now, the synagogue didn't bring freedom to the man held by the demon. But if he hadn't gone to the synagogue that day, well, his story might be very different. We go to the synagogue ourselves in many different ways. We go to the therapist, the doctor, the CPA, we get an education, we listen to a podcast, we take a personal inventory, we buy a self-help book. And I, I don't think any of these things are a waste of time. These things are wonderful. They're beneficial. They're helpful. And sometimes we find that whatever we're dealing with is remedied just by going to our synagogue. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we look for help outside of ourselves, but we still can't find the help we need. For instance, I have brought struggles to the therapist's office, dearly hoping to find help with what I was struggling with, and I've had times when the therapist is unable to offer complete healing. The therapist is unable to solve my struggle. But that doesn't mean that the therapist's office was useless. Because I can say in all seriousness that if I hadn't gone to therapy, I don't think I would have asked Jesus some of the questions that I asked Jesus personally that led me to receiving answers that were deeply healing to my soul and life-changing. The synagogue didn't bring freedom to the man held by the demon, but the man wouldn't have experienced freedom if he hadn't gone to the synagogue. So sometimes when you go to the synagogue, when you go to your place of community wisdom, education, worship, gathering, when you go to that place, sometimes it puts you in the proximity of the one, Jesus, who can heal you. Sometimes the synagogue is where you open up to the possibility of asking Jesus something that you would have never thought of asking Jesus before. Sometimes the synagogue is the place where some part of your heart, your mind, your body becomes open to receive healing, to receive deliverance from Jesus. It doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing equation where you say, well, I guess I'm totally Jesus or I guess I'm totally synagogue. Oftentimes it's synagogue plus Jesus equals the healing, the deliverance, the freedom. So I want to pause here. Rather than trying to understand, diagnose, explain all the ways that evil has infected your heart, your mind, your body, I want to give you space to simply recognize the reality of evil, to say, this is real. There's something out there that's real. And I don't have the wherewithal to save myself. I need outside help. I need healing and hope and direction and love and provision 
and protection and reconciliation and freedom and saving and deliverance. I need divine intervention. And I want to give you that space to turn your mind and your heart and your body towards Jesus and to say to Jesus, Jesus, deliver me from the evil. And to join your prayers with others, Jesus, deliver us from the evil. And to listen. What is the liberating word that Jesus says to you? Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.